making its way into the world, being known more and more through the world. And Dr. Baird is going to address that. And uh, I would really encourage you to be a part of that. And you can sign up online. You can sign up in the family room. You can see Doug Brown, Douglas Brown, and he'll make sure that you get all the information that you need. Now, Bible's open, John chapter 6. We have our outlines. Let's pray to God and jump into the lesson. Father, thank you so much for this time in which you bless us with the opportunity to study your word and to know that that word is, is powerful in our lives, that it's like a sword, that it, it, it critiques our lives. It, it, it helps us. It's that straight edge, Father, for us to see our lives in light of eternity. And so we pray that you will help us to discern it, to give us eyes that see and ears that hear. And we pray this with all of our heart in the name of Jesus and all the church said. I want to begin with a a story, a a very true story that happened to me this week. This last Wednesday, uh, I went at lunch to get a haircut at a place where a lot of you get your haircut, a place over here on Judson. And I got there, and uh, I parked my truck in a, in a spot where there was empty spaces on both sides, went in, got my hair cut, came out, jumped into the truck. And as you know, my, my truck sits a little high. And so as I'm backing out slowly, slowly, and cutting the wheel, I notice out of the corner of my eye on the passenger side just the tip top of some motorcycle handlebars. And I hit the brakes immediately, but it was too late. And uh, I see those handlebars on that bike begin to go. And I went, well done, preacher boy. Put the car in drive. I pull back into the parking spot and I go around the truck. And yes, indeed, I knocked over a motorcycle. But not just any motorcycle, a Harley Davidson. I mean, I've committed the act of sacrilege in the, you know, in the biker world. I'm expecting Armageddon any minute now, all right? So, uh, I, you know, I bend down, I pick up the bike, put it back on stand, do a quick once around it, and the bike is fine. The bike is just fine. But I'm not leaving that place until I've talked to the owner and make sure that that's the right thing to do, right? So I decide, okay, where's the, where in this, this strip mall is this guy going to be? So I'm standing and I'm facing the strip mall and I look over here and there's the place where I got my hair cut. I don't think there was anybody in there that would ride that bike, but even so, uh, nobody's going to pay money to get their hair cut and then put a helmet on and ride in the wind, right? Probably not there. I look straight ahead and there's a church. Probably not there. The place looks closed. I look all the way to the right and there's a biker bar. Now, I didn't fall off of a turnip truck yesterday. I mean, that's where I've got to go. So I walk over into this place and I open the door and I walk in and there's about 15 men and women that are kind of around the bar area. And I wish you could have seen their expression when I walked into that bar. I mean, they know without a doubt that Hawaii Five O has not walked in there. It's more like their high school English teacher. I mean, I'm wearing this green and white pinstripe uh, nautica, you know, button-down shirt with this cream sweater vest <laughs> and dockers. And I, I just sort of say to the group, um, I blurted out really, I said, uh, any of you fine patrons uh, own a Harley Davidson? And this big burly guy, kid you not, big burly guy, you know, a t-shirt and a big old beard, you know, 
He raises his hand like I am his English teacher. And he goes, uh, uh, that, that, would, that would be me. And then I hear this voice kind of on the other side say, Oh, man, you didn't lay his bike down, did you? What can you say? So I said, that's a fact, Jack. No joke. That's what I said. To all, that's a fact, Jack. Uh, do you mind coming out and checking it out? And the guy comes out, and he's, he was a great dude, a very, very nice man. He went around the bike and looked at it and checked it out and all these kinds of things. And uh, he goes, you know, this, this, there's nothing wrong with this bike. I, I'm cool, and we shake hands. And uh, I, he goes back into the bar, and I turn around to look, and, and then that's when I see it. There were like eight of those guys that were out there by that door, and they were ready to whip up on the high school English teacher with the new haircut, you know, in case trouble was brewing. Now, the, the, you know, but they went back inside, and I jumped my truck and backed out very slowly and left. Now, why do, why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story for one simple reason. You know, there are times when you're in danger and you don't even know it. There are times when things are wrong and you don't even know it. You know, when you go to the Gospel of Matthew, one of the things that you find in chapter 13 are all these great parables. And in particular is this parable in which, in which Jesus talks about Here's this field where this owner plants all of this great seed. And at night, his enemy comes in and plants these weeds. And then all of a sudden, they start to come up. And his, his, his foreman and all of his employees, you know, they want to pull the weeds out. And the owner with the good seed says, no, don't, don't do that. And the point of the story is really this. There is a time when weeds and wheat look alike, but they're not. They look alike, but they're not. They look alike, but there's a time that's coming when what they are will be easily discerned. That's not the only place where Jesus talks about this, this kind of a subject. You go to the Sermon on the Mount, the very end of it, Matthew chapter 7, and you find Jesus saying in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I what? I never. Now, these are people that think that they are doing things in the name of Jesus and that everything is great. And Jesus says, away from me, you evildoers. These are people that are doing things in Jesus' name. But he says, I don't know you. Jesus is saying that it is possible for you to say that you are a believer. There are good things that you can be doing even in Jesus' name. And in the end, Jesus not know you. That he does not have a relationship with them or with you. The point is, Christianity is more than a life of doing good and not doing evil. Let me say that again. Christianity is more than a life of doing good and not doing evil. The point is, folks, is that when you were called, there is a force that is dealing with you. The force is God Himself. And He's not calling you first and foremost to accept a set of doctrines, principles, and values 
the, the intellectual agreement that there is a God, what He's doing is establishing through His Spirit and through the blood of His Son his, his adoption papers with you, that you have a relationship with Him, that you have become His child. Paul says that very thing in Romans 8 where he says, you know, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's what? It's about relationship with God. It's about relationship with the Spirit. And it's about relationship with the Son. Which brings us to John chapter 6 and true and false discipleship. Like we saw last week, discipleship is really about following Jesus. And at the beginning of chapter 6, specifically verse 24, there is this multitude of people who are following after Jesus. And not only are they looking for Him and trying to follow Him, but they find Him. And because they find Him and and, uh, because it's an opportunity to teach, Jesus begins to do that. He teaches these disciples. Now that's, you know, verse 24, they're looking for Him. Chapter 6 is a very long chapter. Does this teaching, by the time you get to verse 60, many of these disciples have become very troubled. They're they're upset. Look at verse 60. On hearing it, many of His disciples said, this is a what? Hard teaching who can accept it? I want you to circle that word hard on your outlines or in your Bible. It is in the original language the word scleros, which means hard, but not in the sense of difficult to understand. It's more in line with, with difficult to swallow. Difficult to swallow, and it might even cause you to choke. It might even evoke the gag reflex. Now, Jesus has taught them something, and they're saying, you know what, I, I can't swallow this. I, this, I, I can't get this down. I, ca- I can't accept it. And notice what Jesus says in response. Now, he's aware that his disciples are grumbling. He says to them, does this offend you? Verse 63, these words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Yet there are some of you. He's speaking to people who have been referred to as, this, as his disciples. He says, yet there are some of you who do not what? Say it louder. There are disciples who do not believe. This is a hard teaching that Jesus has given them. And they understand what He's saying. Jesus has revealed what it means to be His disciple, what it means to be His follower. And some of these disciples, they don't want to believe it. Disciples who don't really believe. And because they were disciples, false disciples, who didn't really believe, they stopped following And because they stopped following, they dropped out. And here's the reason. False disciples have not come to grips with the enormous lordship claims of Jesus for total commitment. That coming to grips with total commitment to Jesus, making Him the center of your life, that is the turning point for these folks. And here's how Jesus spoke that truth for them to understand that He was to be at the center, that He was to be everything. He says in verse 53, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up at the last day, for My flesh is real food and My blood is real drink. Whoever eats My flesh and drinks My blood remains in Me and I in him. Now, I I find that cryptic. I I know that you do. But these people in in, uh, John chapter 6 have figured out very quickly what it is that Jesus is talking about. One of the reasons that they're following Him, one of the reasons back in verse 24 they're they're trying to find Him, is that back at the very beginning of that chapter, He has fed the 5,000. 
He's taken some, some, some fish and some loaves, just a handful of each, and he's got these multitudes of people that are following him. They're hungry. They need something to eat. And he feeds them. And Jesus knows without a shadow of a doubt that these people are following him for the wrong reason. They're following him for, for what they can get. They're following him for, for what they can eat. And so Jesus, is, Jesus challenges them in some teaching about eating. Now, now, why does he do that? Well, obviously, they're, they're wanting to follow Him because He's given them something to eat. But dry, drill down a little bit deeper about this eating. And you can't live without eating, right? Eating is at the center of, 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 our, of our day a lot of times. You go back 2,000 years where they didn't have an HEB on every corner. They didn't have a McDonald's or a Sonic or any of these things. I mean, there was a lot of your day that was consumed and focused with trying to figure out, what am I going to eat? Eating is what you have to do to keep going. Eating is, is what keeps you ticking. You, this eating of bread is what keeps you ticking a little bit longer. And Jesus, even in John chapter 6, refers to Himself as the bread of life. He says, you eat the bread of life, which Jesus is using as a metaphor to refer to Himself, is what keeps you ticking for all of eternity. Eating Jesus, He's saying, is what keeps you ticking. Making Him that focus, that thing that sustains you. The problem is, is that for a lot of us, you know, we have so much of our identity that's tied up in not just our career, but even being successful in that career. The problem is, is that it doesn't work. All of, all of that can be taken away. Sometimes it's, it's, it's relationships. But people get divorced. Sometimes there's estrangement in the family, unfortunately. It's not family. It's not the stuff. None of that stuff lasts. And Jesus is trying to take their eyes off of things that are temporal and things that don't really last at all very long. And He says, I have to be the thing that gives you life and makes your life. Jesus, in using the metaphor of eating, is saying, I've got to be the center. Jesus has got to be the center, the, the, the very thing that gets you up in the morning. He's got to be the, the thing that, that helps you to, to know what your purpose and significance in life is, even when everything else has been stripped away. Now, the folks in John chapter 6, I guarantee you, they know what he's talking about. They understand that he's saying that if you really want to live, live abundantly. If you want to live with, 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 uh, with, in all of eternity, if you want to live life with purpose, it's like eating me. You've got to take me in. I've got to be your focus. I've got to be your sustenance. I've got to be the center. They understand that and they turn away. The false disciples choked on this hard saying that Jesus had to be central if there was going to be anything like life. Now back in the, the 1980s, there, there was a major league, it was a sad story, there was a major league baseball player who committed suicide, tried to take his wife with him. Why? He's a professional athlete. He's famous. He's a pitcher. Been in the World Series. He's got lots of money. He's got fame. But there was one pitch in the World Series that got hit for a home run. They end up losing the series, and his career begins to unravel. And not only is he shaken because of the pitch that he threw, but the, but the, but the criticism that rose up around him was just kind of like an avalanche and overwhelmed him. His friend Bob Boone uh, said that he was never able to get over the loss. The reason was that he made baseball his meat and drink. And he ended up starving. Jesus in John chapter 6 is claiming 
If you want to understand, if you want to be a disciple, you have to understand what discipleship is. You have to understand that Jesus is claiming absolute lordship. And false disciples choke on that. True disciples do not. They know that God created them, that, that Jesus redeemed them, and they, get, and they are to give all that they are to God. You have to come to grips with this demand of Jesus on your life. Think about it this way. Uh, you know, you walk up to a Coke machine, you put a coin, you push the button, nothing happens. You know, you, you push the button again and there's no Coke that's produced. And then you realize that you heard that coin go in, but it didn't go all the way down. And so you get nothing until that coin goes all the way down into the center of that machine. And because it hasn't, what do you do to the machine? You begin to rock and you tip it and knee it a little bit and these kinds of things until you hear the change going all the way down. That machine is not going to produce for you a, 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 a beautiful, lovely, fantastic cold can of Coke until that coin has gone down all the way. And as disciples, brothers and sisters, until that coin goes down all the way, there is not going to be any greatness of faith. Bottom line. Why did Christianity in those first couple of centuries, why did it take over the entire Roman Empire? because some coins went all the way down. Why did the, the, the early Christians you know, survive, the Christianity survive in spite of all the persecutions? It's because the coin went all the way down. Why did those early Christians face martyrdom rather than save their own lives? It's because the coin dropped all the way. And a lot of modern Christians wonder why they're not experiencing this kind of faith. Why they're not experiencing the same kind of faith that they had in the first century, in the second century, as they were, you know, as, as the Romans were leaving Rome and all of those major cities because of the plagues and the sickness and trying to save themselves and tossing their loved ones out of the cart. The Christians are going into the center of that. The coin has to drop. Modern disciples who are not experiencing that same kind of faith. The reason is you, you have to come to grips with the lordship claims of Jesus in your life. And like a lot of Coke machines, you need to be bumped a little bit. And so true disciples, on the other hand, have made Jesus both Lord and Savior. Not just Savior, but Lord as well, because that's what He is. A real disciple is going to say, you know what, I just received some bad news in my life. And things are not going very well, and I'm suffering, and I'm in pain. And you know what I could use right now? I could use a little bit of, of relief. But more than any of that, I know that I'm a sinner. And what I need is pardon and forgiveness and grace. And because I have that above all things, I'm going to be okay. Can a person be a Christian and hold on to the control of their life? The answer is no. And at the end of chapter, uh, this, the sixth chapter, Peter gives us this great irreducible minimum on what it means to be a disciple. Jesus watches people turn and leave Him. And notice 
that as they're turning and leaving, after Jesus has made this claim that you cannot be my disciple unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. If you do that, then you have life. Then I will raise you up. All of these things. And as people are beginning to choke on that, they say, I can't accept that. And they begin to turn around. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, you know, if you turn around and you, and, and you leave right now, there's going to be hell to pay. He doesn't say that. He turns to the twelve and he asks, you don't want to leave too, do you? Basically, why are you a disciple, Peter, when everyone else is choking? Listen carefully to what Peter says. He says in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? And then in verse 69, he says, We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter knows that the answer to all of life is not in him. You know, at one point in his life, Peter had been this I-can-handle-it kind of a guy only to learn that that's a very dangerous thing. And he learned it the hard way. The, the beginning of discipleship is the realization that there is only one to whom any of us can go. So let me ask you, church, to whom will you go? To career, to other kinds of relationships, to possessions, to power, to influence. To whom will you go? Have you made Jesus not just your Savior, but the Holy One of God? And then secondly, in verse 68, says, you know what? You are the one who has the words of eternal life. And Peter says, you know, I, I get it. I, I know what achievement is. I've caught fish, sustained a family, making a life. But my own merit, my own good is not enough. And Jesus says, you're the one that has the words of eternal life. You know, we used to debate a lot in college about uh, different things. And a lot of them, you know, didn't really amount to a hill of beans. And one of them was, you know, when, when, when somebody is baptized, do they have to know that Jesus is Lord? And, you know, the debate rates like this, you know, well, when somebody is baptized, uh, you know, we, we say in the name of, you know, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But other, you know, the other side of the argument was, you know, well, you know, He's our Savior. That's what's happening in baptism. But it, the other side of the argument was, but the Lord is the one who is saving you. And for Him to just become some perfect dude who dies on the cross and not the Holy One of God, God Himself, who is Lord of the universe, then what you have done is accepted Him as Savior, and that is cheap, cheap, cheap grace. The one who died for you is the Lord. And the one who bids you to follow Him by taking up your cross and following Him is Lord. And the one whose, whose name is going to be recognized and whose face is going to be recognized at the end of time and every knee will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. The reason that we struggle with our faith sometimes is because we haven't allowed the coin to go all the way down to the place where it produces greatness of faith. 
that sustains us through every moment in this life. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. It's an invitation song. And the reason we call it an invitation song is because we invite you to make a change. We invite you to respond to the, to the call of God in your life. Remember, there's a force that is dealing with you. It's not just an empty word. It's, a, it's the word that said, let there be light and there was light, and let there be the heavens and the earth and there were the heavens and the earth. That is the word, the word of power, the word of God that calls you. There is a force that is dealing with your life. And if you hear it and you're ready to confess that Jesus is the Lord of your life, that He is not just your Savior, but also your King and the focal point of all of your attention. And you're ready to give your life to Him this morning. 